a controlled society, take away all your freedoms and order the society in a way that they think it should be ordered. Well, that's precisely what the New World Order is all about. Look what happened in 2001 and what's happened since 2001. 2001 was mentioned over and over and over in the elite's books and their biographies, in the big think tanks, in their publications. The century of change. All through academia, they talked about the century of change. What did they mean, century of change? It's a whole new ordering of the world and everybody and your way of life in that world. And we'll talk about that when I come back from this break. about the New World Order, something that people will sort of um, take in their stride because they take everything in their stride that happens to them. They've been so domesticated and mind-bombed by media, which now is normal for them. They, they get so many little bits and bites of information every day from a, a thousand sources. It kind, of, it kind of winds its way through the ears and that space in between that great cosmos in there and, and then gradually escapes through the other ear or something and leaves little residues behind them and they never really think through anything to any depth whatsoever. You see, they've been trained and they don't know it. They don't know they've been trained to accept what's called governance. Governance is a system where it simply exists and you obey and you take it for granted. That's the key to it. You take everything for granted that somehow there are special people benevolent people above you who deal with all the big affairs in life and, and they, they're, they have their best interests at heart. That, that's really how most people operate today. That's why they go for everything that, that comes along. And as I say, the century of change was talked about for four, a uh, hundred years. A hundred years. This, the 21st century was to be the century of change. And academia and philosophy. Now, how would these characters know this kind of stuff was going to happen then? Well, you see, it's a very old plan. And if you go back even to the writings of Benjamin Franklin, uh, when, he was, when he was talking about the Federation of the United States of America, with the 13 colonies and, and so on, he, he said that he envisaged that this would be the beginning of a federation of the world. And he didn't stop there. He said it'd be run eventually by 12 wise men. That's in his own letters and, and in the diary of Benjamin Franklin. And you can, you can look at that from the Franklin Museum for yourselves. Long-term plan. But, of course, to get to there, you have to get people through stages where they think they're all working for themselves and working together, but still for themselves, in a sense. And, and it, it's called a form of government, sometimes republicanism, but also within the republicanism is a form of democracy, you think, where you have rights and freedoms written down, and you can also vote for people. And, of course, you can't get them out of office, but you always think you can, you know, if, if they change their mind after you get them in. But we can't really, we can't get them out. They're in there for the term. But, but, so, but then you get to the stage, of course, where the better types, those, the wise men, 
can rule the world in the proper fashion. Benevolent dictatorship. If you go back into ancient times, they talked about the benevolent dictatorship. Plato talked about it in his book, The Republic. And they truly believed that the, the, the majority of the public could never rule themselves. And they could never handle freedoms. Now, the founding fathers of America, not all of them went along on the same track as Benjamin Franklin. And they did think they were giving the people a chance to see if they could handle freedom, knowing that a lot of people would also abuse that freedom and steal and rob from other people, that kind of stuff. But they also knew that you could not punish the whole people collectively for the crimes of a few. And that's why you have in the United States a self-unique setup that's pretty well demolished now since 9-11, but it's a unique setup where... Um, if there was a bit of a doubt in any court case, you just couldn't put them in the slammer. Even if they, they knew they were letting off a guy who was guilty, it was better to let that go than use absolute power over every person who comes in to courts. Because then a lot of the innocent get locked away as well. In collectivist societies and Sovietized societies, you have collective punishment. One person shoots someone, well, everyone gets their guns banned. That's how it works. And people don't know, don't know that they've gone into collectivism in the Western Hemisphere, step by step, from at least World War I, and definitely ramping up in World War II, when government exploded with departments to take over areas that were left to the private sector. I don't mean big business, I mean even the small, small farmer even. Everything came under government. And once the war was over, these departments never disbanded. They got bigger and bigger, as all government departments tend to do. Because there was a plan there. Now, it's no coincidence either that you said 12 wise men, Benjamin Franklin, would rule the world. It's no coincidence that the EU flag, and it was in the papers at the time, even though they had more members of the, uh, the economic union under this new totalitarian parliament system uh, than the 12. And it, it, it would bring in dozens, they said. But they were going to stick to 12 stars on the flag. It never explained it to the public. Very important occultic number, you see. And, as I say, going back to Plato, and, and then go back to... Remember all the ancient Greeks, the famous ones, were educated in Egypt. We find some people talked about Philemon. Philemon was the fisher king. Fisher King, that all the ancient occultists talked about. He literally was a kind of human being with the wings of the Kingfisher. And his job was to go out into the world and find disciples to teach. And they would be benevolent rulers over the unwashed masses. That was the idea of the Fisher King. But to bring him into the mysteries, it would bring him through a whole series of instructions, starting with even three or four years of silence before he was brought into the inner circles. That was to weed out the ones who couldn't keep their mouth shut because secrecy was of vital importance. And we know that people like Pythagoras studied in Egypt and he went off to Croton and he set up his school like many of them did with the same system, three or four years of silence.
silence, indoctrination into, for youth especially, teenagers, and even he trained young females uh, and gave them good educations, but selected them and trained them to go after nobility, to try and get marriage partners to alter the thinking and behavior uh, of the nobility and get, to, get them to go along certain ways of working with society. And when the people found out that he was stirring up revolution, uh, they burned down his school. Other ones had had this happen to them too later on. Down through the Egypt. It's amazing that everything that came out of Egypt, really, apart from mummies and so on, uh, was a revolution. Covert revolution over a long period of time. And it didn't stop there. It was totally combined with uh, uh, Greece eventually, because the Greeks at one point dominated Egypt and uh, they had cities built, of course, under Alexander, the Macedonian and Greek uh, system. And they merged the two systems together, but they went back to Greece and then into Western civilization. It's interesting, too, that uh, even the Catholic Church adopted for some of its monasteries uh, a vow of silence in certain ones, like ones. It should be that wave, too, for a particular one, the Franciscan order, and, a, and another order, too. Um, they used to be called the mystic sects at one time but that's another part of it but getting back to this this benevolent dictatorship and Philemon of course was also the you might say the 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 alter ego of of uh, Carl Jung Carl Jung uh, in his early writings before he became famous and he tried to hide it for a while um, communicated with something that he called his alter ego and he called it Philemon the Fisher King so under psychology they would change the world and he said that you got all this information from this alter ego or entity or being today they're calling power animals and spirit guides and all that kind of stuff in the new age but he called it Philemon the Fisher King every high very high Occultist, and I hate to even use the words masons, masons are pretty low on the totem pole compared to them. They got through masonry up to the higher orders and they become fisher kings. They select leaders for the world. It's interesting that the Council on Foreign Relations have gone through their history and how in the 1800s a group got together the richest bankers on the planet, they financed certain people like Cecil Rhodes into being to go off and take over the world's resources. We're looking towards the future where the benevolent dictatorship would come in. And the Cecil Rhodes Foundation that, that trains people today with scholarships for global governance uh, merged eventually with the, with the Lord Alfred Milner Group. Milner uh, and his group were a, a bunch of bankers. They were all bankers, very very wealthy international bankers. And that became the Royal Institute for International Affairs that is a parallel government. And it's a real government. It is the real government over anything that's elected in all the, the British Empire. And anybody who's outside the British Empire is called a Council on Foreign Relations. They have, they have them all through the world. The ones are not affiliated with the, the British Commonwealth, etc.
relations is, was, is still, it's got so many departments working on the coming food shortages because all their big boys in that organization own the food of the world. They still go after all the resources today. Because after all, if you're bringing in a world government, you have to control all the resources and use it like a club or a weapon or punishment or reward. That's how it's going to be done. And I'll put uh, some links up on my site at the end of the show <coughs> on these topics, and especially the one with the, the global governance, the world order in the 21st century from the site of the Council on Foreign Relations, for those who think it's just a old boys club. Back with more after this break. This is Cutting Through the Matrix, talking about the continuity of an idea. Not just an idea, but physical force pushing down through the ages, intergenerationally, this idea through a system of power and control, a system that used an, an era for democracy to gain more power, to gain us just to, to train a, a society, a world society, basically to obey government and to rule over the public and then go through a phase of what we're going through now, world terrorism. It's a war of terror. They always use a war of terror during the periods of revolution. And these guys are behind all revolutions. Most revolutions have been kind of open, they're either bloody or else they're there's social revolutions, like sexual revolutions, that type of stuff, all for a purpose that the public who follow these revolutions and participate never figure out. But it changes a society into a planned direction. And we're going through it now since this war off or war on terror, is what they call it. Your whole lives are changing. We don't even know it. Because since 2001, we've been trained first gradually, and then through shock and awe, uh, re through repetition and frequency of changes, to simply accept change. Change is good, right? Change is good. Remember the little red train? You know, yes, I can. Yes, I can. Yes, we can. They give you children's stories and slogans from Madison Avenue to train you into a system. Pre-planned system. And you haven't a clue where it's going. But they've written about it. Their websites are up there telling you all about it if you can't read it, but it's not really, it's not fun. There's no excitement in there. And I'm reading from the, the Council on Foreign Relations on the websites, and this is one department here. They have many departments over all social issues, and they don't just talk about things. They then send out their emissaries, you know, their, their trained people, trained by Philemon, you might say, uh, who go off with power, technocrats, and tell governments what to do and every president and prime minister for a hundred years has been a member of this organization in most of the western world and the British Commonwealth countries this is international institutions and global governance governance you see a term came out in the 90s to the public for the ones who cared to, to, to go into to see what it was and it's called World Order in the 21st Century, about the program 
in touch with international institutions, global governance, blah, 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 and the Council on Foreign Relations, is supported by a generous grant from the Robina Foundation. See, they've got a foundation uh, supporting each think tank that they have. And these foundations really are the funders for all the NGOs, the new Soviet. That's how the bankers run the world. Not directly, just round about, go round your governments, you see, and your systems. In fact, that's what they said when their, their own writers in their magazine called Foreign Affairs said, we'll have to do an end run around the Constitution rather, rather than hit it head on. Just go around it. And eventually people would forget it existed. And that's kind of happening for a lot of people, youngsters especially. It says here it aims to identify the institutional requirements for effective multilateral, that's world global, cooperation in the 21st century. The program is motivated by recognition that the architecture of global governance, largely reflecting the world as it existed in 1945, has not kept pace with fundamental changes in the international system. But this particular site is on about training the media. You see, through the media, and the media all be on board with the agenda, they'll only put out propaganda that these guys want them to put out. So you have to read it for yourselves. I'll put this link up. It's really interesting. But as I say, there's nothing hidden. There's, there's no conspiracy here because everything really is in the open if you just want to go and find it. Now, what is this New World Order? It's a combination and it really encompasses all the systems you've heard about in the 20th century. It's fascist, it's, it's socialist, it's communistic. It's all of those. The big international corporations are on board, you see, with the big international bankers. That's why pharma is getting its way. It's not doing it by itself just for profit. You've got every prime minister and president across the planet on board with this agenda to stick things in people their whole populations for mild flus and stuff like that. It makes no sense to you, and it won't, because there's always another reason behind it. And you'll find even with these big greening agendas, who's financing it? Well, the same foundations, plus big oil companies. People like that. You think they are the last ones to fund it. No, no, no. They're the first ones, because all the CEOs are parts of this international organization. And they're diversifying anyway outside of just their oil into other methods, you know, of fuel, etc. Not for you all to use in the future, but for the small elite to use, because they're going to bring us all into a global plantation, sort of village type, once most of us have died off or been killed off. And that is part of the plan, is to kill off a lot of the public. Ask the Optimum Population Trust and all the other guys to give you their public face. Well, we don't want to really kill people. We don't want to force abortions. We'd rather people just cooperate with us amongst themselves. What do you think they really say? What do you think they really say? Hmm? So everyone's on boards, you see. And it's based on a system, as I say, that Benjamin Franklin talked about, a council of 12 wise men that eventually will rule the world above at the top of the United Nations. Back with more after this break. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth.
about a system uh, that has been going on down through many centuries, in fact, and has taken many shapes and forms and names at many levels, but always really was a totalitarian idea going back to ancient times, from Plato, even before Plato uh, onwards. In fact, Plato himself uh, ran away from his homeland because he was one of the young students implicated in a possible plot for anarchy or to take over from an existing system of revolution. And he ran off to escape going down with uh, his mentor. And then he came back after a few years and was very, very careful on how he he introduced himself with his new school. And he played the game for a while, you might say, openly. But he was still teaching his students uh, to read his books, to really think in a different fashion. And again, it was an elitist-type organization. And he was a fisher king himself. He chose certain ones to teach. They all did, in fact, all these ancient uh, schools. Because they they believed that uh, there were different types of humans here, ones who were really awake or alive and those who were simply half dead or completely dead. It, it's still the same today, in a sense. Most folk are given a fake reality and they never question it because everyone else around them doesn't question it. But the idea was always to run the world and to bring in a world empire run by wise men, the kind that Benjamin Franklin talked about and the, the kind that comes from foreign relations talks about and big players at the United Nations like Jacques Attali now Attali was a, an advisor top advisor to top to presidents in France and then he went off to the United Nations and people went to see him rather than see the presidents because they knew who ran the country Jacques Attali did he wrote a book called Millennium which was winners and losers in the coming new world order and he went, he went through the system as he, as he foresaw it because he was at the big meetings where they planned this kind of stuff that the whole system he talked about the collapsing of America and the economy and everything else back in the early 90s and how eventually so much unemployment in America people would be the next boat people would be from America looking for work abroad in fact and there's much more he could have said but they can't tell you the whole deal of course in a published book but he wrote another book, it's called A Brief History of the Future. Now remember, he's a top participant in think tanks. And in the book there he talks about a system, post-democratic, where benevolent dictators, wise men, multi-billionaires, philanthropists, you know, the very guys who run the parallel governments through foundations, they will have a group together uh, openly and they'll run the world's. Because you see, everything else is a mess. Look at, look at democracy. Look at the terrible mess of democracy. And, and international corporations just running rampant, doing as they wish. I mean, we're in such a mess, aren't we? There's wars and all that kind of stuff and terrorism. So these philanthropists, these benevolent characters, will take over for us, you see. And they will all be so, so beaten down to their knees with all the awful stuff from democracy that will gladly take their hands and, 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 and demand they help us out, give up our rights, etc. They can guide us. Fisher kings who become masters, you see. That's what it's about. And we will see the same guys who brought us to the stage, who have run the parallel government for well over 100 years, 
who've actually been behind the wars, according to Carol Quigley, the official historian for the Council on Foreign Relations. The wars were all, all strategies towards a bigger agenda, world government. And then you go into other heroes that are given to the public. The public are always given heroes to follow. And you get it even in the patriot movement, the conspiracy talk movements, all kind of heroes come out. And the people follow, follow them because they often have more information than anyone else. Often unique information that no one else could get, a hand, get hold of, in fact. That's how they're often launched. And the general public get them too. Now, Ralph Nader, everyone knows Ralph Nader. And all I knew was probably the average person knew as well from the little news clips where he spoke out about uh, the, the awful car industry and how unsafe it was and demanding rights and seat belts and things like that. And that's what you thought of for Ralph Nader until I heard him run it when he was running for office. And a little bit was played on a radio program. He was talking to his own particular audience, his voters, if you like, his backers. And he said, my job, he says, is actually to eliminate, eliminate the internal combustion engine. And I thought, wow, that's not what you're used to hearing from him. And that's the agenda, of course, part of the agenda, New World Order, is to have, go through an era where the bulk die off or get sterilized. H.G. Wells talked about it in A Modern Utopia. They're always talking about utopias. You'll find all down through the ages, these particular guys who belong to these organizations. There really is all one organization, ultimately. But Ralph Nader, uh, and I'll put this link up as well, you can read it for yourself. He's written a book, and it's a sort of fictional book. He said he, he uses fiction because it stimulates our imagination, but it's to get us to think along a certain path. And the title of the book, remember I just mentioned Jack Satali, who talked in a brief history of the future, that eventually these great philanthropists, the ultra-rich men, the, the men who have nothing to gain, they've all the money in the world, so they're not out to fight and, and, and get to the top. They are at the top. They'll rule the world. Well, Ralph Nader, his book is called Only the Rich Can Save Us. What a coincidence. What a coincidence. That you'll pull a lot of the left wing around exactly as other ones are pulling the right wing around and they'll all meet on the same path, which was a pre-planned thing in the first place because that's a dialectic in motion, isn't it? That's how it works. What a coincidence. What a coincidence. And he calls them meliorists, you see, in his book, this club, which means betterment. These are retired, he says, progressive, enlightened billionaires and mega-millionaires who want to better the country. That's what they call themselves. You see, that's what, his, that's what his, his book's about, he says. And he names some of the people that he would have in this group of it that really existed. And guess who it is? It's all the ones that you know of already. What a coincidence, too. What a coincidence. And how they could really run the world much better because they're not fighting with parties against parties and personal, personal uh, uh, ego or aggrandizement. They're actually, they've done it all, they've won everything. They're out to help the public. So there you go, the benevolent dictatorship. But mind you, the dictators will have to be firm with the people and make us sort of reduce the population consumption and go green and all that kind of stuff and allow them to, well, run our lives for us and decide what we should do and work out for the rest of our lives and behave and what we should speak about and not speak about, etc., etc., etc. 
Because believe you me, nothing in this world, nothing is free. Nothing. The mind has no firewall, eh? It's up to you to guard it. Canada. Canada is awful quiet. Canada's a very quiet country. It's involved in so much, you know, across the world, but it keeps itself very quiet, like if it's a pristine image under the snow that covers a lot of dirt, because we're involved in so many things that even the Canadians don't even know about, including leading the world in bacterial and viral warfare since World War II. It's, it's astonishing. As I say, it's absolutely astonishing as to, to what's been happening. There's so much has happened to American Indians. I've talked before about uh, Kevin Annett. Annett. Kevin Annett uh, came out after working with, uh, I think it was the BC Indians, British Columbia Indians, about the atrocities that were carried out on them by the authorities, both combination of the Anglican, I think it was the Anglican Church and different churches, uh, literally putting, taking children from their, 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 their families to break up their system, their culture, etc. And they didn't get back to see their families, and a lot of them died while in the school. They were abused and killed. He brought that to light, and he was heavily persecuted by the authorities for doing so. Heavily persecuted. But he's a website up talking about what I've been thinking about, too. It says, this, 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 I'll put this link up too, remember. It says, the mask slips for those with eyes to see. Preparing, preparing for the real pandemic, September the 19th, 2009. And it says, last week, many of the Aboriginal people in the remote West Coast village of Ahusat were inoculated with the flu vaccine. Today, over a hundred of them are sick, and the sickness is spreading. Now, remember, I mentioned this last week. In the same week, body bags were sent to similarly remote native reserves in northern Manitoba that have also received the vaccine. He says Tamil flu vaccine, but I don't think it's Tamil flu. But anyway, on the face of things, it appears that the flu vaccinations are causing a sickness that is being deliberately aimed at Aboriginal people across Canada, and this sickness will be fatal, a fact acknowledged by the Canadian government by the routine sending of body bags to these Indian villages. And that's, you don't make these kind of mistakes. You just don't make these kind of mistakes, sending body bags. That's in the mainstream papers. Before you express your shock and denial at the idea that people are being racially targeted and killed, remember that murdering Indians with vaccinations is not a new or abnormal thing in Canada. Indeed, it's how we Europeans won the land, and it's one of the ways we keep it. In 1862, Anglican Church missionaries, Reverend John Sheepshanks and Robert Brown, inoculated interior Salish Indians in British Columbia with a live smallpox vaccine that wiped out entire native communities within a month, just prior to the settlement of this native land by gold prospectors associated with these missionaries and government officials. In 1909, Dr. Peter Bryce Bryce of the Indian Affairs Department in Ottawa claimed that Catholic and Protestant churches were deliberately exposing native children to smallpox and tuberculosis in residential schools across Canada and letting them die untreated. Thousands of children died as a result. That was in the Globe and Mail newspaper, April 24, 2007. In 1932, British Columbia Provincial Police attempted to lay charges against Catholic missionaries who had sent smallpox-laden Indian children back amongst their families along the Fraser River near Mission 
British Columbia. The RCMP intervened and protected the church, even though the whole, whole villages were wiped out as a result of the church's actions. In 1969, native children who escaped from the Nanaimo Indian Hospital on Vancouver Island described being inoculated with shots that caused many of them to die with bloated up bodies and scabs all over, to quote one survivor. Knowing this history, it's not surprising when Indians on isolated Canadian reserves start sickening and dying en masse from sudden illnesses after receiving flu shots. After all, it's still the law in Canada under the apartheid Indian Act that no on-reserve Indian can refuse. That's law, it's true, I looked into that. No on-reserve Indian can refuse medical treatments or experimentation. So it's small wonder that these reserves are the places being targeted first to be injected with untested, unsafe, and potentially lethal flu vaccines. As an entire race of involuntary test subjects, Indians in Canada are a weather vane for what will befall all of us, and very soon. For the very techniques and weapons of genocide perfected against Aboriginal people are now being deployed against mainstream Canadians. Under Bill C-6, which is about to pass a third reading in Parliament, and become the law, no Canadian will be allowed to refuse inoculations for the swine flu, despite the fact that it is relatively benign and mild, and has killed only people who are already immune-compromised. Indeed, it is astounding that such coercion and dictatorial laws are being employed to deal with what the Chief Canadian Health Officer has called a mild seasonal flu. Now, I've been saying this over and over again. Why all this hyper Overreaction over a mild flu. Something stinks. Something stinks here. And you combine that with the Ultimate Population Trust, Prince Charles, and all the rest of them yelling, We've got to bring down the population. The United Nations, we've got to bring down the population. Hype, hype, hype. Think about it. <clears throat> it says here, Clearly, another agenda is at work, but the time to ascertain and challenge that agenda has all but run out. This coming month, forced inoculations and imprisonment of those who refuse them may be a reality across Canada. And for what reason? Clearly not for public health, considering the sickness and death caused by previous swine flu vaccines. I believe that the real pandemic is about to be unleashed through the very vaccines being pushed by governments and pharmaceutical giants like Novartis and GlaxoSmithKline. The shots will be the cause, not the cure, of the pandemic. That's what I think, too. It'll be so simple to give you shots, you see. And then over about a month or so, you get all this stuff filtering in the news. Oh, we're dying, we're dying. And they'll tell you, oh, well, you see, we got... Just like they always tell you the flu shot, it was the wrong, it was a, it was the wrong combination. It didn't work with the flu. It's the flu that's killing you. You've caught the flu. And they'll believe it. I'll never dawn on them that the shot gave them it. Is of course those in power can disprove this by simply being the first people to take the swine flu shot, and I agree. An event about as likely as these companies forgoing the multi-billion dollar profits they will reap from the mass vaccinations. They should lead by example, shouldn't they? And we should get stuff from the same lots as they do, if we get it at all. Not the special lots, you know, vaccine lots. It's indeed ironic that very soon many white Canadians may be suffering the same fate that Aboriginal people have for centuries. Perhaps it's fitting. For, for if we are indeed being targeted for extermination, or at the least martial law and dictatorship, we finally can have the chance to shed our complicity 
the genocide of other people and get on the right side of humanity simply by having to fight the system that's causing mass murder. It's food for thought, isn't it? Think about it. And in mainstream, again, the guardian.co.uk surprised has got into the, the newspapers. Dr. Crippen is a doctor. Just don't try giving me the swine flu vaccine, he says. If something goes wrong, we could have a major medical disaster. The government's chief commissar, he goes a commissar, see he's on the, on the ball here, we know what's going on, this doctor knows. The government's chief commissar for immunizations, Professor David Salisbury, has said that nurses have a duty to be immunized against swine flu. A poll by nursingtimes.net showed that 30% of respondents would refuse to have it. And by the way, there's a huge march going to take place in Long Island with the Nurses Association against the mandatory flu shot too. I'll read that. I've got time. Getting back to this one. If the government is surprised at the number of nurses who will not have the immunization, just wait to see what happens when they offer it to doctors. On the facts available to date, I will not be having it, nor will my family. I will not be the only doctor taking this view. In 1976, after a swine flu outbreak at Fort Dix, one person really came down dead after a forced march and he was hauled out of bed. He died. This is what this is the excuse he was back now. A vaccine was hastily manufactured, same as this one. And I'll read the rest of this when I come back from this break. Reading an article from Dr. Crippen in Britain from the, from the Guardian newspaper who said he had taken the shot and neither will his family, and he goes through the reasons why. He talks about the, the, the last farce of the swine flu outbreak in 1976, Fort Dix. It says where a vaccine was hastily manufactured, it had to be withdrawn a few weeks later as it was causing serious neurological problems. I mean, many people got paralyzed with it, a lot of teenagers too. Science has moved on since then, you may say, that could not happen now. And that's how folk think, eh? But if governments have confidence in the safety of the vaccine, why has Kathleen Sibelius, the U.S. Secretary of Health and Human Services, felt it necessary to sign a document making federal officials and vaccine makers immune from lawsuits related to any ill effects from the vaccine? Now, why is that, eh? Why has the United Kingdom uh, government sent letters to neurologists asking them to be on alert for neurological complications caused by the immunization for this safe shot eh? I did trust the government would introduce an emergency vaccination program for smallpox but smallpox was a deadly disease and the vaccination was tried, tested and proven the swine flu immunization is being rushed out it is of uncertain efficacy it has to be given to prevent a disease which as yet is mild. Well, that's why she makes us all think, what's the big hype? It's overreaction. It's the same with the, the terrorism thing, right? A small band of terrorists and the whole world is under martial law. Our, all, all, our lives have been changed by it. We're all under homeland securities of one sort or another. Overreaction is because planned that way. Different agenda on, under Gwazi. The second wave of swine flu may be worse, I don't know. But I do know that if the virus mutates to a more virulent form, 
immunisation may in any case not work. Well, that's what I've said for, for months and months and months. It doesn't go against, it goes against all the reasoning in vaccines. See, so if it mutates into a killer disease, you would then have to get the killer disease and create a vaccine for that. The present one ain't going to help you. The mild one ain't going to help you against a mutated one. So what's really going on here? Says we're in the run-up to an election. The government has to be seen to be doing something. He thinks it's just politics, which is nonsense. Every year, like obedient sheep, thousands troop into their local health center to have a flu immunization. You may have had one last year. Did it work? This is the doctor talking. I'm amazed that there has not been a public outcry of people saying, excuse me, I had a flu jab last year and I still got swine flu. See, that technically should have covered you from the, from the present mild flu if, if you took last year's flu shots, because all flus are related to some extent. Millions of trusting citizens may have the new uh, swine flu immunization. If something goes wrong, as it did at Fort Dix, we could have a major medical disaster. Dr. Crippen is a pseudonym for a long-serving general practitioner. Every week he brings us first-hand account of what's really happening inside the National Health Service. And lastly, if I could fit it in, this is a this link up for the nurses' rally against mandatory swine flu vaccines in Long Island nurses from Stony Brook University Medical Center. Going to rally with healthcare workers across the state next week in Albany, protest a, a state regulation that mandates they must be vaccinated for swine flu or lose their jobs. I love democracy. We have all these choices. We're post democratic, you see. Post democratic. Now, here's the music coming in. And I'll put all these links up on my site, so check them out for yourself, go through them. Lots of good information there. From Hamish, myself, and Ontario, Canada, it's good night. And may your God or your gods go with.